0: Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Molly. Molly, we have discussed many aspects of fashion and fashion history. That's true. On our podcast. Those are some of my favorite episodes. Yeah. Very fun to find out. History of high heels, Mm -hmm. braziers. Pantyhose. Pantyhose. Yeah, great, great fun. But today, we're going to get controversial. This has been called the most controversial fashion item in the entire fashion history of fashion.
1: I know. If there was ever a loaded fashion item, here it is. The corset. (laughs) (laughs) That was
0: like a simultaneous
1: fail. It's so controversial, Kristen. We can't even say it in unison. I know. Because its power might overwhelm us. It,
0: it really might. And we talked about corsets in our episode on foot binding. Because time and again, whenever you read about foot binding, at some point, they bring up what a lot of people consider the Western equivalent of foot binding to be corset. Mm-hmm. And in terms of it being sort of a oppressive
1: thing, something yes. that women did... Uh, because men told them to, and men wanted them to look like this and, right. and fit these certain ideals. And I remember after we did that foot binding um podcast, we heard from a few women who were like, "No, corsets are awesome. You guys need to reexamine the corset." Yeah. And that is sort of the argument that is going on about corsets right now. There are a ton of people who are saying this is oppressive and probably the worst thing ever. Mm-hmm. And there are a ton of people saying, "Hey, now, no." Yeah. Corsets are pretty cool. You're misinterpreting a lot of history and we're going to try and, and, and sludge through these arguments today and figure out what exactly is going on with this one piece of
0: clothing. So I think a good place to start digging through all of this, this corset and lacing this corset <laughs> history would be with Valerie Steele's book on the cultural history of the corset. And Valerie Steele is a good person to talk to about this because she is the head of the Fashion Institute of Technology. So she she knows what she's talking about.
1: In fact, the corset is what inspired her to go into fashion because reading about these social and cultural arguments about the corset kind of showed her the importance of fashion through time. So it's it's something that her name is associated with over and over again. And I would say that she probably has the most middle-of-the-road approach to corsets. Mm -hmm. She has traced the history, and she kind of traces the feelings the women at the time had about corsets as opposed to what women of our time are projecting on those women.
0: Right, and I think this quote from her book sums it up pretty nicely. She says, Corsetry was not one monolithic, unchanging experience that all unfortunate women experienced before being liberated by feminism. It was a situated practice that meant different things to different people, at different times
1: and so she goes back through the history of the corset and the the word corset and what we typically think of as a corset really doesn't come into being until the 1800s victorian era that's when we most associate corsets but there is evidence from very early on that women and men were wearing tightly laced undergarments Mm -hmm. to hold themselves in to be fashionable
0: to uh to look to look pretty swell. So the point of corsets and the cloth bodices that were the predecessors to corsets was to lend shape, to provide some kind of silhouette to the fashions of the times. It wasn't necessarily meant to create the wasp waist, those incredibly tiny, tiny, unnaturally tiny waists that we often hear about.
1: Right. It was just, I mean, it was as regular as underwear. It wasn't something that women thought of as confining. They may not have been the most comfortable things in the world, but it was just like Kristen said, to lend shape. And it was the kind of thing that uh, reading about corsets kind of reminded me of our leg shaving podcast, where the fashion sort of started at the top and worked its way down, where there were a lot of queens associated with wearing corsets to make their beautiful fabrics fall more Mm -hmm. gracefully on their bodies. And the aristocracy could then abor- afford a corset. So they were mimicking the royalty as we tend to do. And it just kind of worked its way down through the masses as, as corsets became more, uh, easily made, more people would, would buy them. And so to not wear a corset at the time would be seen as the poorest of the
0: poor, you know, uh, just unclassy. But critics of the corset would probably respond to that with, well, what about, iron corsets that date back to medieval times. I mean, if that's not an instrument of torture for women, I don't know what is.
1: It's not an instrument of torture, Kristen? Write the record, Molly. Tell me what it is. It was actually a back brace. And, you know, there are still tales of women today who wear corsets simply because it makes them stand up straight and have really good posture. But you, sometimes you'll see these um, iron metal corsets in museums and go, oh, my God, I would never wear that, no matter how... How much i slumped but these very early prototypes that have been drug dug up as examples of of women's oppression they were actually back braces that were often used during war times uh there are some accounts of army doctors writing reports saying you know the soldier had a back problem i put him in this iron brace you know that's what that was so um that's one of the things that people bring up as a symbol of oppression like kristen said the really tiny waist Mm Um, cinching your corset so tight that you would get to like, you know, a 16 inch waist or something like that. Uh, according to Valerie Steele, who went and studied bodies, uh, from this time, that was not very common. That was a very small element was practicing extreme tight lacing. And didn't that have a a fetish aspect to it as well. Right. There were all these ladies magazines. There would be an, a letter from someone who was like, ooh, I tightened my corset so that it was six, I had a 16 inch waist and I couldn't breathe. And the way Steele looks at these letters, it becomes clear that sometimes the men are writing them mm-hmm. because they seem really turned on by the fact that these women have really small waists and the fact that, you know, the way that the language is repeated. Uh, has led Steele and other scholars to say these letters were made up and it was very rare. And it was because it was so rare, the, you know, the the rare things that are shocking. Those are the things that make headlines, mm-hmm. the things that are so out of the norm. And it's just that history remembers that about corsets and not necessarily the women who were just wearing them as a, an undergarment, the way we might wear uh, Spanks today,
0: right? I mean, they're certainly meant to to keep the tummy and the hips all all tucked in. But if you look at corsets from Colonial Williamsburg, the smallest waist size you would have would be 24 inches, mm-hmm. and the largest would be 30 inches. Granted, 24 inches is a very petite waist. But that's certainly a far cry from a 16 inch wasp waist. Right. And one
1: scholar actually looked at all the waist to hip ratios of those like 24 inch waists. And consistently, no matter how small the waist was, the waist to hip ratio was .72, which is considered normal. So it's not like women, like we said, the majority of women are not wearing corsets simply to get, you know, a broomstick waist. That just wasn't the norm. It was more about um, making sure that your dress fell correctly it wasn't you know they, they admit it wasn't necessarily the most comfortable thing but i don't think many of us would say that high heels are the most comfortable thing or that uh what else is not really that comfortable i mean it's you know there are some things where we're hesitant to say well that was just the fashion of the time um you know and then there's other things where it's like hey you know we like wearing many skirts and we don't care if uh men like them because we like them and it's empowering to wear them and Steele makes the argument that women at the time would have felt empowered to wear a corset because, yes, it did draw a man's eye. Sure. Um, but if you're coming out of the Victorian era where sex was just kept behind closed doors, is it not empowering to wear a corset in the same way that, you know, choosing to wear whatever kind of top you want to wear is empowering today?
0: Well, and I think that a lot of the, the demonizing of course, it's is looking at it from the wrong perspective because like when we were talking about leg shaving it was surprising to both of us to find that it was actually women leading the new trend to remove all the hair off their legs and then by and large all of a sudden it's you know 2011 and we're having to go through this almost daily routine uh, but it wasn't something that men dictated that we do. And, you know, even though a lot of women,
1: when things like the suffrage movement were going on, there were a lot of women saying, fellow women, take off your corsets, be free, don't, don't subject yourself to this pain. But just as many men were saying that as women, uh, there were always these articles in medical journals about how bad corsets were for your health. And scholars like still have gone back and reevaluated them and, and say that, you know, a lot of this is bunk like it just these problems that women were having were probably because they were not uh eating a nutritious diet Mm -hmm. you know there weren't there's no knowledge of you know vitamins and things to keep up your health on a daily basis um but just as many men were saying take off your corset as women were saying you know we're keeping the corset on
0: yeah and Making corsets was also a source of income for a lot of women. Uh, Valerie Steele says that by the early 19th century, the majority of small and medium-sized corset manufacturers were women, and it ballooned into a $2 billion, in today's terms, $2 billion industry. I think one really interesting point I learned about in reading about corsets is the link between
1: corsets and maternity, because a lot of those doctors who were saying, take off your corsets, Tended to say them when birth rates fail, fell. Mm-hmm. And so there was this link between corsets and miscarriage and, um, troubled pregnancies and stillborn births. And so sometimes the doctors who were, were saying, take off your corsets were, uh, saying, oh my gosh, we need to keep these women at home having children, not out fighting for suffrage. And sometimes the letters of the women seem to indicate that this is the very reason they liked the corset. Right. It was a bit of a type of a birth control.
0: But as we know, in the 20th century, fashions began to change. Garments got a lot looser. We have Paul Poiret um, outlawing the corset in favor of these very draped, looser-fitting clothes. Mm -hmm. And also, we have the rise of the tango. Yes, apparently when
1: women are given the choice between fashion and dance... They will always choose dance. dance. Now, at the, now, at the beginning of the 20th century, there was, um you know, a greater focus on athleticism where women we were getting to play sports. And according to Slate, you know, you'd walk into a clubhouse after a tennis match, and uh, there'd just be bloody corsets from whale bones jutting into women's bodies as they were playing tennis. So that is extreme. It was pretty extreme, <laughs> but... um when the tango rose in popularity, this was the one sort of athletic activity where women were like, I, I'm willing to give up this high fashion for for a tango. At first, there were tango corsets, which were a little bit looser and made for dancing. But eventually, the popularity of the tango may have been the downfall of the corset as a regular uh, item of clothing. Because when they were trying to outlaw corsets, women just thought, That was the most classless thing that I've ever seen. How, how uncouth to wear anything less than a corset.
0: But when you give them a tango, give them a tango, they don't want, they don't want bloody corsets on their hands, you know? (laughs) And by the way, if I ever start a goth band, Molly, first of all, I will ask you to join. And second (laughs) of all, it will be called the bloody corsets.
1: But you know, as you said, fashions change and Through time, through the past century, the corset has been brought back up into vogue and then put back down. And its I think it's through those kind of lenses that we might judge it. Of course, the name most associated with corsets is Madonna, Mm -hmm. when she wore that corset. And people were saying this is when the corset turned from the symbol of oppression to the symbol of female sexual empowerment. Mm -hmm. But, you know, like we said, according to some scholars like Steele, Women of the 1800s would have seen it just as much a tool of sexual empowerment as Madonna did. They, you know, they may not have been able to breathe, but they certainly didn't think they were oppressed by the male gaze. They didn't think they were oppressed by this piece of clothing. It was simply what was done and
0: following fashion.
1: And, um, you know, so I don't think that they would uh, fall at Madonna's legs and say, oh, yes, you were the one who, who truly revolutionized the corset. They would say it was this way. All along and that, uh, you know, that's why to compare it to foot binding is so
0: troubling for the aficionados of the corset. Yes. So I have a feeling that at least a few people listening are probably surprised that we did not just rip corsets a new one. And we could have the research is
1: out there. We could have done it, people. People writing about heteronormative societies and corsets are a <laughs> dime a dozen.
0: <laughs> so, uh, yeah, let us know your thoughts on, on corsets. And if you want to do that, you can send us an email at momstuff at com, or you can also hit us up on Facebook and Twitter. But in the meantime, let's read an email at you. <laughs>
1: Right, I have an email here from Petra, and it's about the orgasmic childbirth episode. And she writes, I thought that episode was great. I don't exactly understand why people feel so icky about the subject, considering we all talk about Viagra and other men's issues with half a qualm. My mother claims that she had orgasms in the hospital with all five of her children, including me, her first child. When she told me about her orgasms, I have to be honest, I was a little grossed out. The thought that my head traveling down her birth canal caused her to climax would probably gross out other people as well. Now that I've had a few years to think about it, though, I'm glad she had that experience rather than the pain and fear a lot of other women have. Hearing the horror stories from parents who were treated callously by doctors or had complications kind of terrifies me, and it's good to know birth does not have to be a sterile, scary experience. I plan on becoming a mother someday, and I consider myself lucky to have a mother who is experienced and has a positive attitude about pregnancy and childbirth.
0: Well, on the opposite end of the spectrum, i got an email here on our child-free. Podcast, And this is from Katie and she said, I'm a woman with type one diabetes who's made the choice to adopt instead of give birth to a child that would share my genes. Diabetes can be passed on genetically, although there is no guarantee or even necessarily a high risk that I would pass my condition on to any children. Pregnancy is also high risk for type one diabetics. Though many diabetic women sometimes successfully give birth to healthy children. I'm only able to live a healthy, normal life because of the benefits of modern medicine. Had I been born in an earlier time, I would not have lived to a reproductive age. I would much rather adopt a child who needs a family than run the risk of a high-risk pregnancy and the continuation of my genes. I understand that to many people, having a child with whom they share a genetic tie is important. But for me, it's not the genes, but the bond between parent and child that's important. I don't view the choice to be child-free as selfish in any way. Only those who feel like they are fit to and want to parent should. And adoption is a factor in that decision. So thank you, Katie, for that email and for everyone else who emails us as well. And again, you can also hit us up on Facebook and Twitter, and you can read our blog during the week, Stuff Mom Never Told You, and it's at HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. To learn more about the podcast, click on the podcast icon in the upper right corner of our homepage. The House of Fork's iPhone app has arrived. Download it today, on iTunes. Brought to you by the Reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you?